right, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you today. Thanks for being here. If you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to take it and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. Just hold that ready for a couple of minutes. I want to greet everyone who's joining us online. I hope you've got a Bible handy for you and that you can open up to 2 Peter chapter 3 as well. This is the second week of our Vintage Christmas series. You know, when you hear the word vintage, you can think about a lot of different things. Uh, some people think about quality and uh, authenticity, something that's genuine. When we think of the word vintage, oftentimes we go back in time. We think of something that's from a previous period of time. I know when my son was in high school at Center Grove when he was a senior, and he was going to his uh, prom as a senior, there was a guy here in the church who had a vintage red 1969 Camaro, perfect shape. And he let Andrew drive that to the prom, drive that to pick up his date and take her to the prom, uh, which was a really cool experience. We got some great pictures with that. But the only downside was he didn't want that car parked down in a garage, a parking garage in downtown Indy for a long time. And so I had to follow, Sandy and I had to follow along behind, and she had to drop me off at the garage, and I had to drive the car back home so it would be safe and sound in our garage until the prom was over, and then I drove it back downtown so we could drive it home. I didn't really mind because I got to drive the car. So that was kind of a fun experience. When I told Brian Tabor, our worship and arts pastor, that I wanted to do a theme this year called Vintage Christmas, I said one of the things that we could do is we could bring back some songs or elements that we'd done in celebrations at Christmas in times past, Vintage Christmas, and we could use them again. And so I wanted to begin by showing you uh, this video that tells the Christmas story in kind of a special way. It's not uh, something we did a long time ago, but we did make this video a few years ago, and I think it's kind of special. Let's watch it together for the next three or four minutes. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. 
I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. One of the reasons why that video resonates with us is that while I began by reading from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, prophecy about Jesus, what I did for most of the video is I read that familiar Christmas story from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. There's no question that's the most frequently read passage of Scripture every year when it comes to Christmas. I know at our house, and probably many of you who are here and listening online would say the exact same thing every year at Christmas. The very first thing we do when we get out of bed is we gather around the tree in the living room and I open up the Bible and we read those 20 verses and that's how we begin our day. We read it because we want to make sure that our hearts are in the right place as we begin the rest of the day. But that's not our text this morning or this weekend. Our text is 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 18 through 15 because what we sometimes do is we get so caught up in the spirit of Christmas that we forget the biblical truth that the birth of Jesus was not the end of the story. That doesn't take away from the story because everything about Jesus' birth in Bethlehem was absolutely incredible, including the fact that it was the fulfillment of so many prophecies. Let me just share a couple of those prophecies with you as a reminder this morning. In Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 4, we read these words, Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And we know from the Gospels that the word Emmanuel means God with us. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, we read, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times, obviously a reference to the Messiah, and that's who Jesus was. He was the Messiah. If we had time, we could look at other passages because there are multiple, multiple passages of Scripture in the Bible that prophesy about the birth of Jesus. But the message that I have for you this morning is that the birth of Jesus, as spectacular and special and important as it was, was not the end of the story. The other day I was reading a Christmas devotion, and it had an empty title. It was simply called The Empty Christmas. I want to just share the first few lines of it with you. <clears throat> It began like this. Most people don't understand Christmas. They never think about, excuse me, they never think beyond the babe in the manger. But Christmas is actually about an emptiness, an empty throne, an empty manger, an empty cross, 
and an empty tomb, all of which fill our empty hearts. It's a circuit. When Jesus traveled from heaven to earth, he used a round-trip ticket with stops along the way. He left the throne for the manger, the manger for the cross, the cross for the tomb, and then he left the tomb to return to the throne. And he left blessings at every stop. He emptied himself so that we might be filled. Now, I love that devotion for a lot of different reasons, one of which was this simple truth that the birth of Jesus wasn't the end of the story. And we miss Christmas if we focus on the fact that Jesus came without remembering why he came. But even that devotion, as much as I loved it, as good as it was, even that devotion came up short in that it left out a significant part of the story of Jesus, and that's the part of the story where he's coming back again. As most of you know, we began a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew all the way back in November of 2016. We're not finished with it yet. Now, you know that I broke the Gospel of Matthew up into different sections, and so when we would finish a section, then we would do something different for a few weeks, and then throughout the calendar year, we have certain things that we observe and celebrate and certain things that we do that kind of create a, uh, the need to break up the message. But when we return to the Gospel of Matthew in February of 2020, we won't leave it again until we're com- we're, it's complete. Uh, we're going to return to Matthew chapter 26, and the Gospel of Matthew has 28 chapters, so we've got three chapters left until we're finished. The last time we were in the Gospel of Matthew, when we were in chapter 24, we saw a passage of Scripture where Jesus spends a significant amount of time talking to his disciples about his second coming. Even though Jesus has not gone to the cross, he's not died, he's not been buried in the tomb, he's not risen from the dead, he spends a significant amount of time talking to them about his return. Let me give you a couple of references. In Matthew 24 and verse 42, he tells the disciples, Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. And then a couple of verses later in verse 44, he says, So you must also be ready because the Son of Man, and by the way, the term Son of Man was the most common term Jesus used for himself in the Gospels. He called himself the Son of Man several times. He says, So you must also be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. I went back and I looked at that message uh, from Matthew chapter 24 just as a reminder this past week when I was putting this together. And here's something that I said as a part of that message where Jesus talks so much about his second coming. Teaching about the second coming of Jesus is a significant part of the Bible. In his book, What in the World is Going On?, Dr. David Jeremiah writes, references to the second coming outnumber references to the first by a factor of eight to one. Scholars count 1,845 biblical references to the second coming in 17 Old Testament books and seven out of every 10 chapters in the New Testament. The Lord himself, Jesus himself, referred to his return 21 different times. We just read a couple of those references from Matthew chapter 24. And so here's what we need to understand. Here's what I want to remind you of this morning. While Jesus has already accomplished so much with his birth and his death and his resurrection and his return to heavenly glory, we're still not at the end of the story. And that brings us to our text this morning in 2 Peter chapter 3. And so if you've got your Bible open there and you're able this morning, I want to invite you to stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. Our text again is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. I want you to follow along as I read. Peter writes and says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. 
The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask for God to bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. You'll notice that there's nothing in that passage about Mary. There's nothing about Joseph. There's nothing about Bethlehem because this is not a passage of Scripture about the first coming of Jesus. This is a passage of Scripture that focuses on the second coming of Jesus. But I'm using it this weekend to remind us that God's ultimate purpose was not satisfied in the birth of Jesus. And as important a part of the Christmas story as that is, another important part is remembering that the birth of Jesus was not the end of the story. God has planned a sequel, and one day Jesus will come again, and until that happens, what we need to understand is we're living in the interim or we're living in the middle period between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And so while we live in this interim or this middle period, we need to make sure we live with the right kind of focus and the right kind of purpose. I think there's some teaching in that passage we just read from 2 Peter chapter 3 that we need to understand to help us live with that right focus and that right purpose in this interim or middle time. And so that's what I want to spend a few minutes talking to you about. If you'd like to take notes, write down next to number one, the first teaching that I think it's important for us to understand, and that's this. Number one is, what is it? God's universal will for everyone is clear. I've only preached this three or four times already, so I'm sorry I didn't remember that. God's universal will for everyone is clear. We, we've talked about this before. We've talked about the fact over the years that while God has a will for every one of us, and there's a part of that will that's specific for every one of us, I believe God has a specific will for my life. I believe God has a specific will for your life. There is a part of God's will that is universal in that it's the same for all of us. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how different God's specific will might be for us. There's a part of the will of God that's the same for all of us everywhere. It's the same for us here in central Indiana as it is for people who are living on the other side of the world. And we see the very first and the most important of God's universal will clearly in this passage of Scripture. Look back at verses 8 and 9. Peter writes and says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. And then he goes on to say, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He is patient with you. And here it is, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What's Peter saying? He's saying the will of God for everyone everywhere is that they be saved. God wants everyone to be saved. God wants as many people as possible to be saved. And this isn't the only place where we see this teaching. Look at these words from 1 Timothy chapter 2. We'll put them up on the screen, uh, verses 3 and 4. In the first two verses of 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul gives instruction about worship. And then he goes on to say, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. In fact, 
Read that with me. Let me hear your voices. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants as many people as possible to be saved. Now, because of that, because God is patient, because God is slow, as some count slowness with regard to the second coming of Jesus, that's caused over time some believers to become impatient as they wait for the second coming, and that's caused some critics to be skeptical as they wait for the second coming. That's why Peter writes what he does in verse 8, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Let's talk about that for just a moment, about this, this dilemma that we have sometimes about waiting on God. We talked last week in our message in part one of Vintage Christmas about the need at times for us to wait on God. Let's just understand together this morning that God counts time differently than we do. Everybody understand that? God counts time differently than we do. Again, verse 8, Peter says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with God a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. See, here's an important distinction between us and God that we need to remember. We see time against time. God sees time against eternity. Write that down somewhere. We see time against time. What does that mean? We see time against a 24-hour day. We see time against a seven-day week. We see time against a 365-day year. But God sees time against eternity. We see time from a finite perspective. Again, a 24-hour day, a seven-day week, a 365-day year. But God is infinite. And He doesn't count time the same way that we do. This is the teaching of the Scripture, and this, again, this is not the only place where we find this truth. In Psalm 90 and verse 4, the psalmist says, For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch of the night. And so the bottom line is, because God wants everyone to be saved, because God wants as many people as possible to be saved, then He's willing to be patient, and He's willing to wait with regard to the second coming of Christ. Because God cares about everyone. He cares about everyone. You remember the Old Testament story of Jonah? That's one of the most well-known stories of the Bible. God taps Jonah on the shoulder and says, I want you to go to Nineveh because the people are wicked there, wicked in Nineveh. And listen to me, friends. There are not words in our English language that are strong enough to describe the level of wickedness that was among the people of Nineveh. They were so bad. And Jonah, because these people are so bad, he doesn't want to go. So he goes down to Joppa and he gets on a ship going the exact opposite direction, right? And then the spectacular part of the story comes along where God gets Jonah's attention and he gets swallowed by a fish and then, and then uh, uh, saved from the fish and he goes directly to Nineveh and now he's, on, he's speaking on behalf of God and he's sharing a message that is really simple. This is what Jonah said to the people of Nineveh when he got there. These wicked people, God was going to destroy these wicked people if they didn't turn around. Jonah just simply said, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That was it. How'd you like to go to a revival service? And the preacher got up, and he, he said something as simple and short as that. Well, you might like that if it was that short. I don't know. No such thing as a bad short sermon, right? We'll never know. We'll never know. We'll never know. But that's all he said. 
And it was enough because the people were broken. You remember the story? They repented. They were, in, they were in sackcloth and ashes, and they turned to God, and as a result, God spared them. Well, Jonah had gone outside the city, and he'd set himself up there so he could watch fire rain down from heaven and destroy these wicked people. And when it didn't happen, he got angry. Do you remember that? He got angry. And this is how God spoke to Jonah after he got angry that he had saved the people of Nineveh. God said, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. And then God said, should I not be concerned about that great city? Should I not be concerned about that great city? See, this is the heart of God. God cares about everyone. God is concerned about everyone. And because of that, because of that, he is patient, and sometimes we have to wait for the second coming of Christ. It's a, all a part of God's universal will because He wants as many people as possible to be saved. We see that clearly in verses 8 and 9. God wants people to turn from their sin and turn to Him. This is His heart. This is, how, this is the beat of His heart because He loves and cares about everyone. This is his universal will for everyone. But that's not the only aspect of the universal will of God that's made clear in our passage of Scripture. Not only do we see this reality of God loving and caring about everyone and wanting as many people as possible to be saved, but that's what we see in verses 8 and 9. But look at verses 11 and 12. We see another aspect of his universal will. He says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? And here it is. This is another part of his universal will for all of us. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. God is patient with regard to the second coming of Jesus because he wants to see as many people as possible come to repentance. But ultimately, the Bible says that the second coming of Jesus will happen. And since that's going to happen, as we wait, we need to live a holy and blameless lives, godly lives. In other words, God's will for all of us is that we be good that we'd be good. And so we're reminded here that while it sometimes doesn't appear that God has a plan and it seems like God is absent and distant at times in our lives, that He always has a plan. He always has a will. And it begins by seeing as many people as possible saved, and it continues with you and me living holy and blameless lives. That's what God wants for all of us. He wants us to be good. And so as we find ourselves living in this interim or this middle time between the first and the second coming of Jesus, remembering that that is the will of God for all of us will help us to live with the right kind of focus and the right kind of purpose. Right down next to number two. The second truth that I see here that helps us with our focus and purpose in this interim time is God doesn't give up on anyone. I'm going to put verse 3 of 2 Peter, or verse 9, rather, of 2 Peter 3 back up on the screen, and uh, I want to just look at it again. I know we've already talked about it, but this is a very important verse. Uh, the Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I've met a lot of people over the years. I've been a pastor for many years, and I've had many opportunities to, to, to talk about Christ to people in a variety of different settings to try to share spiritual influence and point people to Christ in a variety of different settings. I've had so many people say things to me like, don't waste your time, pastor. I'm too far gone. Don't waste your time, pastor. I've made too many mistakes. Don't waste your time, pastor. If I walked in the door of your church, the roof would fall down. You know anybody like that? I mean, that's really... Whether or not they're just using that as an, as an excuse or they really believe that, there are a lot of people who talk that way. They just think, you know what, there's no, my life is beyond 
redemption. I have made too many mistakes. I've failed too many times. I've sinned in too great a way for God to ever be able to save me. But that's not the case. In this verse, Peter says that there are three words that really stand out to me about verse 9. He says, God is patient and that he doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Patient, anyone, and everyone. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The same basic truth is communicated further down in our text in verse 15, the very last verse we read, where Peter writes and says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. God is patient. Jesus has not returned yet in part because God wants as many people as possible to be saved. God doesn't give up on anyone. And while we're living in this interim time, this middle period between the first and the second coming, we need to understand that about God. And that needs to shape our focus and that needs to shape our purpose because we need to reach out to as many people as possible with the message of Christ. I mean, if God doesn't give up on anyone, no matter how sinful they are, no matter what kind of life they're living, then certainly we should understand that that means on a practical level, day in and day out, for every one of us, that we shouldn't give up on anyone as well. That we should be involved in every way that we can in pointing people who are a long way from God, pointing those people to Christ. Now, I know that this is one of the most intimidating parts of being a Christian. The idea of, of, uh, of talking to someone else about Christ, of sharing our faith with someone else, of trying to, to share spiritual influence with someone else, I know that that is one of the most intimidating aspects of being a Christian. And the vast majority of people who are Christians never, ever involve themselves in this in any way, shape, or form. But that's one of the reasons why a couple of years ago, I shared with you a new strategy that we were going to embrace as a church to live out the vision and the mission of our church, and we called that strategy spiritual influence. We all need to understand that we have a responsibility to share spiritual influence with people who are a long way from God. And I spent six weeks here on the weekend talking to you about what that looks like. We, about a thousand of you, went through training to learn what that looks like. And it comes down to something as simple as this. Every one of us has the ability to identify one life, one single life in the network of our life. It could be a family member. It could be a neighbor. It could be a, a longtime friend. It could be someone that we work with. One life in the network of our life and be willing to do three things with that one life. Number one, develop a friendship with them. Maybe it's developing a deeper friendship with them. Number two, discovering their story, letting that friendship allow you the opportunity to discover their story, and then number three, discern next steps, which is just a way of saying, let God lead you to how you can point that person to Jesus. It could be as simple as an invitation to church. It might involve you telling them your story and how Christ has changed your life. It can look like a lot of different things, but it comes down to that, to those three steps. Develop a friendship, discover a story, and discern next steps. How's that going for you? 
And we had thousands of people make a commitment with a One Life card. They wrote a name down on a One Life card and they placed it on the platform. We've got those rolled up uh, outside the, the doors here, the worship center on a One Life wall. We got people that are praying over those names constantly. And we've got some great stories. There've been some great stories of people who have uh, identified a One Life and followed those three steps and have led those people to Christ, led their One Life to Christ. We've had baptisms and we've had some great testimonies, but the bottom line is, since God doesn't give up on anyone, we shouldn't give up on anyone. And all of us should be willing to embrace this initiative of sharing spiritual influence with somebody that is our one life. And I want to challenge you that way. I'm sure that there are going to be lots of people who have been in church here this weekend, last night and this morning, lots of people joining us online who didn't have the privilege of growing up in a Christian home like I did, where I was pointed from the very first day of my life toward Christ. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who would say, I'm glad that somebody spent time with me. I'm glad somebody developed a friendship with me. I'm glad somebody took an interest in my story. And I'm glad somebody pointed me to Christ. I bet there are people like that right now listening to me right now. And this should be something we all are willing to embrace because God doesn't give up on anyone. And so while we live in this interim middle time between the first and second coming, we've got to be involved in helping as many people as possible discover a new life in Christ. The third truth that I find in this text, and you can write this down next to number three, is that God hasn't given up on you. That might sound a little bit odd, but let's just think about it for a moment. Look back at verse 14 in our text. 2 Peter 3, 14 says, So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Now, when Peter says, since you are looking forward to this, he's talking about since you are looking forward to the second coming of Christ. And he also tells us that the second coming of Christ is going to ultimately set things in motion to where there's going to be the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. Now, I'm looking forward to those things. How about you? I'm telling you, there are a lot of days when I'm tired of living in this earth, on this world. I'm tired of the earth the way that it is now because the world that we live in now is not the world God created. The world God created was perfect. The world we live in now has been stained and infected by sin, and because of that, it's difficult and disappointing and sorrowful and so many other things. And there are times when I don't know about you, but I am sick and tired of living in this world the way it is, and I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that. But the part of the verse that I really want us to focus on is when Peter says, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort. Make every effort. He's saying, while you're living in this interim time between the first and the second coming of Jesus, while you're looking forward to it, make every effort, make every effort to do what? To be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him, at peace with God. And so when I read that, that speaks to my heart. And it speaks to my heart like this. It says, don't give up. Stay in the game. Because the truth is, life in this world can be difficult. We just talked about that. It can beat us up in a lot of different ways. And oftentimes, it can beat us up spiritually speaking. But the message of Scripture is don't give up because God isn't going to give up on you. 
regardless of what's happening, make every effort to continue to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with God, no matter how many times you've struggled in that area, no matter how many times you've failed in that area, don't give up. Keep making every effort. One of my favorite quotes comes from a man named John MacArthur. It's a quote about the Christian life, and I love it. He says, it's not the perfection of one's life but the direction of a life that provides evidence of regeneration. Sometimes we can look at our lives as Christians and and we can focus on all the ways that we have failed, all the ways that we have struggled, and maybe we struggle in the same way with the same things over and over and over again. We find ourselves constantly asking God's forgiveness for the same things over and over and over again. And so we we, we focus only on the ways we've failed and we think to ourselves, man, I'm the worst Christian that ever lived. Or worse, we might think, am I really a Christian? But it's not the perfection of one's life, but the direction of a life that provides evidence of regeneration. That's another way of saying, listen, don't give up. God hasn't given up on you. God's not going to give up on you. So don't give up on yourself. Stay in the game. Keep making every effort to be spotless, blameless, and at peace with God. I'll be honest with you, friends. I get so disappointed in myself sometimes when it comes to living out the reality of my faith and my salvation. Uh, There was a time, it wasn't all that long ago, and I was just me and another person, and we were having a conversation. They were unhappy with me. Uh, They didn't like a decision I made. They didn't like the way I was leading. They didn't like that I wasn't letting them do something that they wanted to do. It could have been any one of those things or any one of a dozen other things. Welcome to my world. And so at the end of the conversation, when it appeared, when it became apparent that there wasn't going to be any resolution to it, they just looked at me, and this is what they said. They said, you know, I just don't like you very much. And here's what I wanted to say back to them. More than anything else, here's what I wanted to say back to them. Sometimes neither do I. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes neither do I. Because life in this world is hard. Living out your faith day in and day out, trying to maintain the right kind of witness and testimony, trying to do the right thing, trying to make sure that every word, every thought, every action honors Christ, that is hard. And sometimes we fail. But God's not going to give up on us. And so no matter how many times we fail, don't give up on yourself. We're all going to be people who stumble and struggle as we try to live out our faith, but we need to stay in the game and not quit, not give up. I find this instruction that Peter gives here to, for us to live at, to, do, to make every effort to live at peace with him, to live at peace with God, very convicting as well. You know, when you step back and you look at this from a big picture perspective, you have to understand that it's God who has made every effort for us to be able to live at peace with him. So why are we being instructed to make every effort to live at peace with him? I mean, we're taught all throughout the Bible that we can't, we can't have a right relationship with God on our own. We can't live at peace with God on our own. That's why Jesus came. That's why he was born in a manger. That's why he went to a cross. That's why he was buried in a tomb. That's why he rose from the dead. So that because of what he did when we put our faith and trust in him and what he accomplished with his life during that period of time after his first coming, we can have our sin forgiven and we can live in a right relationship with God. We can live at peace with God. And so 
why are we being told that we need to make every effort for this to happen? It's all about what God has done for us in Christ. Remember that Christmas devotion I shared that said that when Jesus traveled from heaven to earth, he used a round-trip ticket with stops along the way. He left the throne for the manger, the manger for the cross, the cross for the tomb, and the tomb for a throne. It's circular. We put our faith and trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross, what he did when he rose from the dead, and that's how we have peace with God. So why is Peter saying make every effort to live at peace with God? Well, here's how I understand it. When we put our faith and our trust in Jesus and what he accomplished with his first coming, we have what you might call positional peace with God because we now have a new position in Christ. If you're a Christian, you have a new position in Christ. That's why you can re read verses like Romans 8.1. It won't be on the screen, so just listen to me. Romans 8.1, Paul says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the most important part of the verse, who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because we're still who we are. We're still sinful. We're still fallen in, in so many ways. Why? Because once you put your faith and trust in Jesus and what he accomplished with his first coming, your life has changed. And when God looks at you, he doesn't see you and your sin and your failure any longer. He sees the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus. That's what it means to be in Christ. That's why Paul says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a positional peace we have. We have a positional peace with God, but here's the deal. That doesn't mean we always experience peace on a practical level in our lives because we can resist that peace when we fail to yield to God. We can resist that peace when we fail to trust God. We can resist that peace when we fail to obey God. I can't, I can't even begin to tell you, folks, how much distress that I feel in my life at different times over circumstances sometimes that are out of my control and circumstances sometimes that are in my control. I told the folks last night at Saturday Night Church, I felt so much distress over this construction project that is surrounding our church and these road closures, and they laughed like I was telling a joke. I'm not telling a joke. That's impacted our church every weekend since it's happened. And it's given me a great deal of distress in my life. And there are so many other things. And if I were to be honest with you this morning, I would tell you that I haven't felt the peace of God in my life, not really, in a while. But here's what I need to tell you that's more important. That's on me. That's not on God. And if you're here this morning and you're, or you're listening to me online and you're not feeling the peace of God in your life for a variety of different reasons, then you need to hear me say this. If you're a Christian, that's on you. That is not on God. Because in the Scriptures, God tells us over and over again that we can experience peace in Him and with Him regardless of what might be going on around us or in us, regardless of what we might be struggling with, if we simply make the choice to trust Him and yield to Him and obey Him day after day after day. And so, let me come back to this third truth while we're living in this interim middle time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus, don't give up on yourself. 
no matter what, no matter how difficult the Christian life may become for you at different times, don't give up on yourself because God has not given up on you and he never will. And somebody should say amen to that. Well, Brian can come and we'll bring this to a close. You know, we love the Christmas story because it's all about how God did something great in human history. But again, friends, what God did in that first Christmas is not the end of the story. And God continues to do great things in human history. God continues to want to do great things in your life if you will let him. And while I don't know where you are in your life and what you're dealing with in this Christmas season... I do know this, I know that God has not given up on you and he never will. And you need to believe that. I want you to pray with me today. Father, thank you for a chance to talk about these things and I pray that you just lead our hearts to respond to these truths in just the right way. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.